Thank you, worship team. That song always takes me back 18 years ago to when I married the keyboardist. <laughs> Just left. We sang that song right here in our wedding day, and uh, it's meant a lot to us and to me personally. And so grateful to be encouraged by your voices here this morning and by our worship team leading us. If you are encouraged and moved with the worship that you experience here on a Sunday morning, this Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock, we're having a special worship focus, a worship night called Lifted. We invite you to come and experience that for us, okay? You found us here this morning in part two of a series we call Refocus, Refresh, Refuel. And this series is like the idea of you... Um, refocusing, refreshing, and refueling perhaps your marriage or something like that, that after a while you kind of sense, you know what, we can have some time to refocus on why we're married, what we're trying to do, and what this is all about. And in that period of doing that, you get refreshed and then refueled to keep going. In a way, that's what we're doing here in this series on the church, and in particular, Grace Point Church. Last week we asked this question, and that is, what are we doing? What in the world are we doing? We talked about mission, and what we talked about basically is that any organization, any movement, any people tends toward drift over time. We looked at Harvard and Yale and even pawn shops and talked a little bit about the YMCA and, and the people of God who have drifted over time from their mission and talked about our mission at Grace Point Church to develop fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ to follow in Jesus' desire to come to seek and to save the lost. So this is our mission. We need to keep coming around that. Now, today is different, all right? Today is less about mission and more about vision. Now, sometimes those words go together. And just to clarify vision, vision is when you answer this question, not what are we doing, but where are we headed? Different question. In other words, if you're part of a sports team, what are we doing today is practice. What you should do every day is, some may say, win the day. Right? Today you need to win the day in practice. We need to be attentive to what we do, bring some energy, and let's win the day today in practice. But where are we headed? The end game is not that we become the best practicers in the world. Okay? That's not the end game. The end game is to whatever, win the championship, win the Super Bowl, win the World Series, whatever it is. That's where we're headed. In order to do that, our mission every day is to win the day. That's what we do today, but that's where we're headed. So if the mission of the church is to develop fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, that's great. But do we practice every week? Is that all we do? Practice? Just keep coming to practice? Or where are we headed? Where are we going? And what is the vision of the church? So I want to talk today about vision. Now, Several years ago, I was introduced to a character, um, compliments of my niece, called Flat Stanley. Anybody ever hear Flat Stanley? Yeah, we've got a couple of Flat Stanley fans, all right. Flat Stanley, I did not know anything about, and I was really taken by Flat Stanley, and by the name, I love the name Flat Stanley. And for those who don't know Flat Stanley, a little friend Stan, Flat Stanley is a character, all right? Um, evidently, there's more to it than I'm aware of, but anyhow, at the end of the day, my niece had a character kind of pressed down, just a piece of paper laminated so that when, you know, she was much younger, you know, that when she took it home from school, it wouldn't get completely ruined. And the idea was to take Flat Stanley with you and write about Flat Stanley's adventures throughout the weekend. You could even, all right, you could even mail Flat Stanley to somewhere around the world, okay? If your relative lives in Hungary, for example, whatever, right? Send Flat Stanley to Hungary and have him come back. And you can write about the adventures all the way to Hungary and back. And as I think about Flat Stanley... Here's what I think about. Sometimes any organization, but churches as well, can have a little bit of a flat vision of what the future might be. In other words, a little bit of, hey, 
I think we're just about this, and that's all. And this morning, I want to round out Flat Stanley a little bit. I want to draw him out from a two-dimensional figure to three-dimensional. I want to draw out a little bit more of what the vision of the church can and should look like. I want us to leave with a 3D picture, not just our flat friend. Okay? In order to do that, I want to go Bible, I want to go history, and I want to go Grace Point. Okay? I want to take you to four different passages in the scriptures. This morning, like a stone skipping across the pond, we're going to go one, two, three, four, and skip right across on each of these big ideas. And we're going to go history. So put on your history caps with me for a moment, because this will be a very important part of our development of understanding where we're going. And then we're going to talk Grace Point. All right, that's where we're going this morning. Sound good? Yeah. Woo! Thank you. Let's do it. So got your Bible? Open that up, if you can, to an Old Testament book called Jeremiah. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's not a problem. There should be one in the pew right near you. That red book is our gift to you, by the way, if you don't own a Bible. We're going to Old Testament prophet to begin, and Jeremiah, um, you will find it if you go to the middle of your Bible and go to the Psalms and just go to the right five books, you will end up finding Jeremiah. It comes after Isaiah. Jeremiah, um, and this is a passage that I've been to before with you, but I want to go back again because it's so foundational to how we think about the vision of the church and of the people of God. Jeremiah 29, beginning at verse 1, is where I want to begin. And this, just to put into context, is a um, a letter that the prophet Jeremiah is going to be writing to the people of Israel who have been taken into captivity by the city, by the people, the rulers of Babylon. Okay? Now you should know, if you don't know about Babylon, Babylon would be considered godless. Babylon does not worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Babylonians are against the things of God, and they are, they are not interested in allowing you to continue the worship of your God when they have their gods. They are a brutal people, who completely destroy and take over the land. Babylonians are a world power at the time as well, and the nation of Israel has succumbed to the Babylonians. And so we have Jeremiah writing from Jerusalem to people in exile in Babylon. And here's verse 1. Now this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests. The prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 2, this was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisah, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. By the way, if you don't know how to say Bible names, just move forward with confidence, even if you're wrong. Okay, I think I just did that there in verse 3. All right. Verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Verse 7 is pivotal. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. We're going to stop it there. All right. Now, here's what's so critical about what Jeremiah is writing about here. Here's what's so critical. 
The question is, if I'm someone who has a history of worshiping Yahweh, has a history of worshiping God, and I'm carried out into exile, into a land in which they don't worship the way I'm used to worshiping, what am I supposed to do? Like, if I can no longer gather for Sunday morning worship, if I can no longer carry on the rituals of the feast and the, um, the sacrificial systems, what am I supposed to do to honor the faith of my fathers? What do I do? And the people around me are godless. The people who have created this culture in which I've been forced now to relocate are against Yahweh. So what am I supposed to do? It's shocking what Jeremiah says in understanding it this way. He says, you know what you should do? Settle down. Build houses. Marry have children, plant vineyards, put roots down where you are, and, verse 7, seek, active verb, seek the peace and prosperity of the godless city, I'm adding that, all right, to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, so you, so too you will prosper. In other words, don't boycott the city. Don't remove yourself from the city. Don't disengage from the city. Don't be uninvolved in the city. Do settle down in the city. He'll go on to write later in the letter to be careful about false teachers, not to be swayed by that. It's good counsel. It's throughout the scriptures not to be swayed by false teaching. He's not saying just give yourself over to the Babylonian gods. He's not saying that. But he is saying seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which you have been called. It's an amazing foundational concept. And here's the important thing. That God is not against those who are against him. I want to say that again because I think it's so important and foundational. God is not against all right, those who are against him. The Babylonians are against God. There's no question at a, at a broad level. They are people who have positioned themselves as enemies of God. They've taken his people captive. They worship other gods. They're brutal. And yet, even in their posture of being against God, God is saying to the people of Israel, hey, now that you're here, seek the peace of the people who are against me. It's what we call common grace. It shows up in the New Testament, and here's where we're going to go to the second verse. I'm going to show it here on the screen, and you can just, just um, see it here in a moment. But in the book of Matthew, Jesus begins telling us about more common grace stuff. He says this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And then he makes this statement, and you'll see it up here. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Have you thought about that before? This is what theologians call the common grace. That even those people who are persecuting Christians, the reason they can eat the food that they get to eat to sustain their strength is because God allows it to rain on their crops so they can eat. He gives good things to people who are even enemies of his own people. 
This is what we call common grace. That even in the middle of people being diametrically opposed to all the things of God, God is gracious. Jesus reminds us of this. Hey, he's like, you're going to love your friends and, and loved ones? That's great. Everybody does that. You want to do something different? You want to do what God does? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Oh, and as a reminder, let me remind you, God is the one who causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, on the evil and the good alike. This is what we call common grace. And then he finishes, Jesus finishes this little statement, and he makes a statement which you may have heard before. It says, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, emulate God. Do the things of God. Do the work of God. Which reminds me of a very famous passage for Christians in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If you, some of you remember, have memorized that. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2.10 says this, and you see it up here. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay? If you're saved from your sin, and we know this as Christians, we're saved to do good works. That makes sense, right? Because we have a God who does good works, a common grace God, who gives the sun and the rain, who instructs his people in the Old Testament to seek the peace of the city in which they've been called. And so God prepares in advance good works and deeds for his followers to do, even to people who are diametrically opposed to him. Now, I'd like you to turn in your Bible to the New Testament book of James. Here, I'd like you to see it in your own hands or whether it's on your tablet or your phone or a Bible in front of you, paper Bible, James chapter 2. I love the book of James for a variety of reasons, but one of them is that this is actually Jesus' brother who wrote the book. Now, I think I've said it before, and you may have heard it. Imagine what it would take to convince your brother that you are God. Okay? And that's what happens here. James is a follower of his brother. He believes that his brother is God. To me, that's pretty significant. And so when James writes, I tend to listen. Not that he's more important than anybody else in the, in the scriptures, but James is writing. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace and keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Okay. So in other words, if you're going to say you have faith in the bench you're sitting in, but actually never sit down in it, you don't actually have faith. You say you have faith, but you're not actually putting your weight on the bench in which you're sitting. You don't actually exercise the faith. You've got to actually sit yourself down and show us that you have faith. We understand that conceptually. But here's what is very interesting to me. What James uses, okay, as a, an example, an illustration, he's like, hey guys, let me tell you, faith without works is dead. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, oh, it's kind of like if someone doesn't have... Um, food or clothing. And you go to them and you go to them and say, "Go in peace." And a Christian greeting, "Go in peace." 
shalom, fullness, have wholeness of life, fullness with God. May your life be at peace with God, yourself, and others. That whole concept of shalom. Go in peace, Christian greeting, and may things go well with you. Then your faith is dead. He's saying, look, if you don't take care of the people around you who have some basic needs, and by illustration, let me tell you, feed the hungry. Clothe those who need it. Support the social and cultural needs of the people around you because this is your faith in action. That's the illustration James uses. He says later in the book that religion that, that God counts as worthless or pure you know, is to care for the widows and orphans in distress. In other words, religion that is considered pure is not religion that is able to dot all of the theological I's and cross all the theological T's. Religion that is most pure is not the religion that's able to memorize the Pentateuch like the Old Testament, uh, like the Pharisees did. Religion that is pure and faultless is to act it out, okay? to, to work it out right in front of you. Now, here's what I want to say about this, because this is our skipping stone across the, the pond. As I look at Jeremiah and Ephesians and Matthew and James, okay, Here's what I see. I see a God who cares not just about how people die, but how they live. I see a God who isn't just concerned about where you're going when you die, but how you're living while you're here. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which you're called. Plant vineyards, build houses, marry, have children. Look around you at the people who are in need, who, who need food and clothing. And don't just say, man, I hope when you die that you will find God. The quality of life that they're experiencing now, if you just say, go in peace, and that's all you say, you've missed something. That I see a God, a God of common grace, who causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall and the evil and the good, the righteous and the unrighteous, who has called his followers to do good works, Ephesians 2.10. And I see a God as a heart for not just how people will die, but how they live. Okay? Now, Here's what you also know, because now we're going to go into a little bit of history. You know this, that everybody has a backstory, right? In other words, have you ever had a teacher that you've been frustrated with? A teacher that you felt like didn't get it, or a coach, or, or a boss who just was short with you, was curt, just didn't understand, and just didn't seem to get along with any of the employees or anybody in the classroom? Anyone ever run into somebody like that? Don't need to raise your hand. <laughs> but have you also ever had the experience where somewhere along the line, you began to see that person differently because all of a sudden you understood why they acted the way they did. And maybe you learned that they lost both of their parents, whether in a car accident or to cancer or something like that. Maybe you learned that their spouse left them high and dry They've not been able to process that well, right? Maybe you learned that they are dealing with or have dealt with some other serious pain or struggle or whatever it is, and you have come not to excuse their behavior but to understand it, right? We've all had that experience at some level. Here's the deal. The backstory matters. The history matters. And so as we come to the Scriptures and as we come to where we sit today, our backstory matters. By that, I mean our collective backstory as Christians in North America. 
And so I want to take you on a quick, quick, quick historical tour because we share some things as North American Christians that impact how we see our world. It's very important to understand our own backstory so we know why we see things the way we do. And I want to take you back to, uh, to what we call the long 19th century in England. I want to take you to England, I want to take you to the United States, and we want to talk about where we are now. Right? England began to develop as a superpower in the long 19th century. Since 1689, England had political stability. For about 120 years, the foundation was set for growth in England to become a world superpower. England experienced agricultural, revolutionary uh, thinking, planting, working, industrial revolution, transportation revolution. They began making more and more money. They actually um, built canals, and we had trains developing, and they were booming as a superpower. In addition, they defeated Napoleon, which meant that the seas were clear for them to have free reign over. They began to work in what we now know as colonization, particularly in Africa, and beginning to set up little colonies here and there. And their, their capital was extreme. There were, these were the heydays of England, where the future seemed eternally bright for the country of England. In the middle of that, we have a couple people such as Whitfield and Wesley who began to move into a spiritual awakening within this superpower in the 18th century, late 18th century. Consequently, by 1815, here's what's important, by 1815, the Church of England accepted what we call, now call evangelicalism into the fold. In other words, they recognized that evangelicals, this this need to respond personally to the gospel of Jesus Christ was important. The Bible is the authority, not just the church. And evangelicals were drawn in to the church and were kind of sanctioned as a legitimate movement. What resulted in that is that in the long 19th century in England, we began to see the arts take on an evangelical sympathy to them. In other words, many of the Victorian pieces of art that we will now look back on and see as developed in that area have religious themes. There was great involvement from evangelicals in politics. There was great involvement from evangelicals in the service-oriented work of the country. In fact, several people kind of rise to the surface here, some of whom you will know, some you may not know, but one of these guys who jumps to the surface is this guy up here, uh, William Wilberforce up here, who many of you may have seen the movie Amazing Grace, okay? Wilberforce was in this time period in England. A politician, an evangelical, someone who gave his heart to the cause to abolish slavery. Someone who also created what we call the, the Chaplain sect, in which he organized people around him to share certain resolute principles related to their marriage and their family and their business leadership and their personal development before Christ and, and God. Wilberforce, a strong political power toward abolition of slavery. We had another guy up here, looks a little bit like a chipmunk, but anyway, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, um, incredible, they call him the Prince of Preachers. Um, the rumor has it spoke to 10 million people in his lifetime, something like that. Spurgeon was not only a great communicator, an incredible orator, but he was also heavily involved in helping to um, reform the chimney sweep business in England at the time. Okay? He saw the abuses that children were experiencing, and he said, hey, it's not just enough for me to preach about it, we need to fix this. 
And he got involved in ministries, involved in helping children come out of that chimney sweep deal. All right? Third guy I want to tell you about is this guy over here, George Mueller. If any of you have a happy Amish grandfather, he kind of looks like him up there. What do you think? Can you see that guy? All right, George Mueller. He was an evangelist. And uh, he, believe it or not, actually uh, was the founder of an organization, an orphanage. Um, personally, he cared for 10,124 orphans in his lifetime. Amazing. Founded 117 schools, educated 120,000 students as an evangelist in England at this time. This final person up here, Elizabeth Fry. She was a Quaker and a Christian philanthropist. And Elizabeth Fry, her business was getting involved in the prison system and reforming the prison system, so much so that she became known as the, the prison angel. And her reputation and interest in prison reform moved her to such notoriety that she's now, on, she's now the face of the five-pound bill from the Bank of England. Okay? Elizabeth Fry. Evangelicals, Christians, heavily, heavily, heavily involved in the town square. Heavily involved in the social, cultural development of England at the time. As history rolled on, you will know World War I came to be, and World War I was a crisis of faith for people because we said, boy, what is going on? If England, the great superpower, has all the resources and we still fight with each other, is there any hope? Attention turns toward America, and I want to turn our attention there now. As we turn toward America in the beginning of the 20th century, in 1925, there began a debate, and you may or may not know this depending on how old you are, if you're more on the, the, how do you say that? Well, what's a nice word for older? Is older okay? Can I say that and be okay with that? Uh, if you're more in the older stage of life, right, you may be more familiar with the after effects of this discussion. Uh, but in 1925, there was this thing um, called the Scopes Trial. The Scopes Trial was held in Tennessee. The Scopes trial, a substitute teacher was put on trial in Tennessee because he allegedly taught evolution in a state-funded school. Believe it or not, it was illegal to do that in 1925. It was illegal, let me say that again, to teach evolution in a state-funded school in 1925. Just to be clear, all right? All right. He was put on trial. Someone um, that you may know uh, was the prosecuting attorney, William Jennings Bryan, a three-time presidential candidate, was the prosecuting attorney. This became a big deal. He was found guilty, was fined $100, which is about $1,500 in today's currency, but he was let off by technicality. On the heels of this, what some called the monkey trial, the Scopes trial, on the heels of this, and here's what's so important for our understanding, there was a journalist in Baltimore, Mencken was his last name, one of many, but one individual in particular who started to press in to the religious community in North America, to press into Christianity in North America, who became a critic of Christianity, clearly. He was very well versed in society and culture and arts and all of that. And he began to press in, saying Christianity is weak. Christianity is a crutch for the, the weak. He was a follower of Nietzsche, and he began to really hammer away at evangelicals to the point where this happened. Evangelicals gathered together, and they said, this isn't good. We've got to protect who we are. We've got to defend who we are. We have to define ourselves. And a movement was formed on the heels of this called fundamentalism. 
fundamentalism defined by five basic fundamentals of the faith, what it means to be Christian. Now, there was more than that, but that was the basics. And fundamentalism, here's what's so important. Fundamentalism began to cocoon itself from the culture, began to draw back and say, we are going to draw the line and we are going to hold our ground. And whatever happens out there, happens out there. But we are going to hold to what is pure and right theologically. We are going to be fundamentalists. When that happened, when the church withdrew from the town square, when the church withdrew from society and culture, the government filled the void. And we began to have two different movements within North American Christianity. One, a fundamentalist movement, which said we need to get all of our theological I's dotted and T's crossed. And the other was what fundamentalists called the liberal movement. The liberal movement fundamentalists saw as simply caring only about societal and cultural needs and not caring about the fundamentals of the faith, which were so important. And there began to be a divide. And we're really good at arguing, and so it's easy to pick sides and make them and fight. And that's what happened. On the heels of that, to add more uh, fuel to the fire, in the 1940s, a young man called Billy Graham, you ever heard of him, came on the scene. Billy Graham was extremely successful in holding conferences and conventions in which he got to proclaim the gospel, proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. In the 1940s, Young Life was founded. In the 1950s, Campus Crusade was founded. And as a culture in North American Christianity, we began to see you don't need, and here's the big takeaway, you don't need to be involved in the social and cultural needs at all. You just need to proclaim the gospel. Just tell people about Jesus. That's all you need. Why waste time building relationships when you can just proclaim Jesus? The 1960s, Josh McDowell, to the 70s, Chuck Smith, the confrontational approach to evangelism took hold. The fundamentalists continued to cocoon themselves, believe we are right, we're holding to the faith. Those liberals over there who are just caring about society and culture, they're missing it. D.L. Moody once said, why polish the brass on a sinking ship. If the culture is going to hell, why waste your time polishing the brass as it's going downhill? Just tell people about Jesus. And somewhere along the line, as the church pulled out of the town square, the government came in to fill the void and take care of the social and cultural needs. And here's what I think happened. The church's vision became like flat Stanley. We are simply here to proclaim a truth about Jesus. And that is it. And somewhere along the line, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which you are called is a distant echo in the past. And somewhere along the line, James, the brother of Jesus, when he says, let me give you an example of how you're to care for the people around you, how you to put your faith into action. Care for the people who are hungry and need food. Clothe the people who need clothing. Became a distant echo from the past. The common grace of God who gives sun and rain to the righteous and the unrighteous regardless of their affection for him became a distant echo in the past. And fundamentalism, buoyed by the strength of the movement, to just proclaim Jesus took the day.
Here's what I want to say. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would be like if the church could do both? Can you imagine what it would be like if the church can be true to her mission that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, that we operate out of the shadow of the cross, that we function because Jesus came to save us, but we do it in the working out of our faith by caring for the social and cultural and spiritual needs of our people. Why do we have to choose? Why can't, why can't we be present in the town square? We talk about the vision for Grace Point Church. Where are we headed Where are we headed? If our mission is to develop fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, where are we headed? We're headed to the center of the town square. We're headed to be in the place where conversation happens about the social, cultural, and spiritual good around us. And so what we say at Grace Point is this, that we want to be relentless in the pursuit of the social, spiritual, and cultural good. We want to take the vision of the church and not have it be flat Stanley, but draw it out and say there's more than just proclaiming Jesus. There's not less than that. Hear me. Why do we have to choose? Let's stay true to the mission in the shadow of the cross in the shadow of that, in the vision of the cross, let's work out our salvation by creating a town square, by leading as the church into what the church has historically done, what Christians are led and called to do, to be for the common good of all people at all times. And you, if your experience is anything like mine, you actually love when you get glimpses of this, don't you? When your kid comes back from school and you learn that they have a Christian teacher, what do you think? Ah, I wish that Christians weren't in school. When you go to the doctor and somewhere along the line the conversation comes to your faith and you realize that this doctor is a believer, You go home and you're like, man, I wish Christians wouldn't become doctors. I hate to run into Christians when I go to the doctor's office. When you go to get your car fixed somewhere and the conversation comes around to your life and your story and your faith and you learn that, man, my mechanic is a believer. What do you begin to think? See, we all know this. When we run into Christians who are leading in the marketplace, who are actively engaged in the social and cultural good, we say yes right now. There's a movie out called The War Room. Some of you have seen that. What do we think when we have movies, right, that Christians are leading into and speaking to, whether it's fireproof or whatever, you know, War Room, whatever it is. We're not like, oh, that's terrible. We're like, oh, we think that's actually good. The Christian worldview is speaking into the arts, speaking into politics, speaking into government, speaking into education. What if the church doesn't have to choose? between cocooning ourselves and being strongly fundamental and stepping into the town square, never disregarding our mission, but understanding 
The God who has called us is the God who has called us to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which we're called. To, with common grace, extend tangible acts of faith and service to the people around us. Offering out the hope of Jesus Christ in the middle of it all. Loving people fully and loving us well. What are we doing as a church? Developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Where are we heading? Into the town square. To be engaged, to create, to move for the social, spiritual, and cultural good for all people at all time. To demonstrate, to show the common grace of God and the special love of God through Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to talk about this more, which you may, have I mentioned that members' meeting will be different this year? These are opportunities for us to talk about what does this mean to do this? What does this look like? Excuse me, I have a question about what you mean by that. Um, hold on, I'm nervous because I think that means this. I'm sorry, can you repeat what you said because are you saying we're going to do this again? Now, wait a minute. Are we doing this or that? Members' meeting will be different this year. Let's process it together. Let's talk about where we're headed, what we're trying to do here at Grace Point Church as we regularly develop fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Fair? Okay. Next week. Not just where we're headed, but here's an important one. What will it feel like on the journey? Our family is planning a trip next year already. We know where we're headed in general, but I'm telling you, we're already thinking about what will it feel like to have the children in the van for this long of a trip? <laughs> what will it feel like for us to walk together? That's a conversation about values. We begin that next Sunday. I hope to see you here. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance this morning to gather around some big ideas about vision and direction, to look biblically, historically, and currently where we find ourselves. I pray that you would continue to give us both courage and insight and graciousness as we walk together well. May we step into our faith and not back from it. May we be men and women, young men and young women, boys and girls, who are continuing to ask the question about how to love well, to serve well, and to lead well. We thank you that you are a loving, kind, gracious Heavenly Father. And we want our lives to be all about representing you to our world. That you can be seen through us, from the common grace that you offer from the sun and the rain to the special acts of service that we do because we're people made in your image. Give us courage to love and to serve well, I pray. In Jesus' name.